Good afternoon and welcome to IFPRI. I'm Rajul Pandya Loach, I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and delighted to welcome you to this event on key messages from the Global Forum for Food and Agriculture 2020 event, Trade for Secure, Diverse and Sustainable Nutrition. It's jointly organized by the, with the Federal Republic of Germany to the United States. Delighted to do so. Thank you for those of you joining us here in person. It's a beautiful day. Those of you joining us online from around the world, look forward to having you with us. And to those of you going to be watching this video in the days and weeks to come. We have a wonderful program lined up for you, organized by my colleague Valeria Pinheiro. Valeria is going to be the moderator for this event. She is Senior Research Coordinator at IFPRI, and we are in excellent hands with Valeria. Valeria, welcome. Hi, how are you, everybody? I know uh, Raju already gave you the uh, thank you, but I have to thank you again for being here, all of you on the ones uh, online and for the many more that will visit us uh, later on on our website. I think that this is a very important uh, topic for uh, IFPRI research and also for the upcoming WTO ministerial conference that is coming up in June, the World Trade Organization. So for us, it's, it's very important to really highlight what happened at the GFFA event in Berlin the um, Global um, Forum for Agriculture, um, for Food and Agriculture. Uh, it happened in Berlin two weeks ago. And, um, and please let me welcome our new DG, Director General at IFPRI, Joe Sweenen, that he will be giving the uh, welcome remarks. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure for me to stand here. This is the first time I'm introducing uh, such a panel, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to do so, particularly because of the topic. I was actually trained in my PhD years as a trade economist, uh, ag food policy trade economist, and then over the years I've done all kinds of other things, so it's glad to be uh, back here on the panel on this. It's also particularly important for IFRI. I think we have a, a large group, a lot of knowledge in-house uh, on these topics, and I see several people in the audience, and I'm going to welcome them, of course, to comment uh, during the discussion session as well. So this is the second time this is organized. Uh, I hope this is the beginning of a tradition in our collaboration. For me, it was the first time I was in Berlin, actually, at the meetings. I've heard so many different stories about this, that it was a great event. Um, and so I've, I once got invited 10 years ago or so, and then I couldn't make it. And I never got invited again until... <laughs> I didn't, say, I didn't come to IFPRI to get invited to go to <laughs> Berlin, but it's a nice fringe benefit. Okay. So the Green Week is a gigantic operation, and then the Global, Food, uh, <laughs> the Global Forum for Food and Agriculture is uh, organized uh, next to it. It was a very impressive uh, set of organizations, set of panels that we had there. I participated in one panel on trade uh, of in Africa, or with Africa and the world, Africa and European Union and another in more generally on trade issues. There was also a ministerial meeting on the Saturday, which was very impressive. I mean, there was representations from, I think, 70 different countries. Excuse me? 71. 71, which mostly ministers there, or, or deputy ministers. And a communique was produced at the end <coughs> of the meeting. And so the communique was very impressive, I thought, in the extent that trade was being emphasized as a very important engine for uh, sustainable development, for sustainable nutrition, okay? And so I remember the 
the representative from OECD, Ken Ash, who will actually be here in a couple of weeks uh, talking about these things, saying that, well, we all hope that all these ministers now go to Geneva and say the same thing what they're saying here today in this communique that would really help to moving forward uh, the Geneva agenda as well. With that, uh, I just want to thank Rajul and Valeria for organizing these things. And of course, uh, welcome <coughs> our uh, co-organizer here and basically give him the floor now, I think. Thank you. Well, hello again. Um, I want just to emphasize the thank you for, the, uh, for Marcus Brill and the uh, embassy from Germany based here in Washington, D.C., for co-organizing this event with us. They are really great partners with uh, IFPRI in many different events that we tried to do with, with them. And having said that, we have uh, online uh, Mr. Uh, Frederick Wacker, Director General of Federal Ministry of Food and Agriculture of the Federal Republic of Germany. He will be joining us uh, on video. Actually, there he is. Um, <laughs> good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. He will be giving us some introduction about what happened in the actual event and, uh, and the declaration of the ministers afterwards. Thank you. Hi, Valeria. Hi, Joe. Uh, here, everybody. I hope you can all understand me well. I'm delighted that you are giving me the opportunity to report about the outcome of the latest GFFA in Berlin that took place two weeks ago. And thank you for the kind words and comments you made, Joe, on your impressions uh, at, um, at the GFFA. The GFFA is a unique international conference. It's the world's biggest gathering of ministers of agriculture, where issues of vital and strategic importance for the future of agriculture are discussed, and it's setting the international agenda for the year ahead. The topic of this year's GFFA was Food for All, Trade for Secure, Diverse, and Sustainable Nutrition. And the WTO initiated the choice of the topic hoping for support in the run-up to the 12th WTO Ministerial Conference in Lusultan, Kazakhstan. And we need a strong signal for rule-based uh, free trade, especially against the backdrop of growing protectionism around the globe. And as we have already mentioned, 71 ministers from all continents and 12 international organizations participated in the event and agreed on a communique which is promoting some very fundamental uh, messages. What are the key messages? Firstly, trade plays an essential role in achieving global food security, fighting malnutrition, diversifying food supply, and compensating food supply deficits in regions with structural deficits are important functions that trade can fulfill. Secondly, trade can be a major driving force for economic development of all countries and regions. It can increase prosperity and employment. Thirdly, trade can also generate sustainable development. It enables efficient use of resources by allowing specialization. And finally, trade promotes economic and political stability. It brings people together and consequently helps to secure peace. In order to deliver all 
on all these benefits, a couple of prerequisites must be fulfilled. FAIR global trade requires global rules and reliable value-based standards and a strong, and I would like to emphasize that, a strong WTO. It must be ensured that all countries and people benefit from trade. Trade must not make the weak weaker and the strong stronger. It must increase welfare on both sides. Value chains must be inclusive, in particular women and smallholders must have the chance to participate in trade, not only internationally, but also regionally and locally. Special attention must, pay, must paid, be paid to the needs of developing countries. And fourthly, the development of sustainable value-added chains is particularly important internationally. Harmonized standards play a crucial role, so the farmers do not need, that the farmers do not need to have their products certified for several standards. The GFFA does not only define common messages, but also offers specific proposals and solutions. What do they propose? Global rules for global markets and the WTO as the central institution for international trade systems must be strengthened and market distorting support measures must be reduced. Local, regional, global value chains must be also strengthened. Adequate policies must be put in place to enhance the equitable distribution of welfare gains across the countries and social strata. Technical and organizational innovations must be promoted, for example, in the field of digitalization. And smallholders should be supported in the form of microcredits and facilitation of their engagement in cooperatives in order to better integrate them into markets. And that's an important issue. Women must be granted more rights and facilitation of their access to markets in order to effectively lift numerous families out of poverty. Continuation of the implementation of environmental measures, compliance with international climate arrangements and international obligations should be ensured. And working, and uh, the ministers invited the International Organization for Standard, uh, Standardization, ISO, uh, to develop voluntary international standards for sustainable value on supply chains. The political highlight of the uh, GFFA, as uh, Joe has already mentioned, was the Agricultural Ministers' Conference on the Saturday, where Giuseppe Sacco from the African Union held the keynote speech reporting about the activities and current status of establishing a pan-African free trade zone. In addition, we had two, uh, two days, conference days about uh, open to the public during uh, which high level representatives of governments, international organizations, the private sector, NGOs, discussed uh, agriculture trade with guests from all over the world. And we held a kickoff event dealing with global food security, trade for global food security. Uh, and among others, we have uh, the Minister of Agriculture of Brazil and an offering cousin, who you might well know as uh, the panelist. And they discussed uh, 
uh, how trade can be made or can be fair, safe, and sustainable. The, my ministry successfully hosted an audit uh, panel with the title Women's Empowerment in International Trade, discussing the challenges that women still face when entering agricultural markets and possible solutions. Overall, it was a very successful conference with uh, 2,300 guests from 100, uh, 110 countries. And I would like to thank uh, your director, Joe Swinnett, for the input he gave at the high level panel. And I could assure you, you will be invited again. So, uh, I would like to come to the end, and uh, uh, I could touch briefly on, on another outcome of the uh, GFFA, just to mention it. Uh, we supported the establishment of the International Digital Council for Food and Agriculture. The concept was uh, presented by FAO uh, and welcomed and endorsed by the ministers. The idea for that was born at the GFFA 2019, and now it will be established. Uh, if you're interested in that, I could touch on, uh, on that and to, uh, provide you with more details in the Q&A session. And I've spoken uh, much too, for much too long, and it will come to an end. Uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you again for giving me the opportunity to present this. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Rucker. And uh, we will see you uh, later for the uh, Q and A. Um, right now, I just want to uh, emphasize the fact that this uh, conference, really, at, or this event at Berlin really attracts many different actors. So we have the policymakers, but you also have the civil society, uh, different think tanks, and the entrepreneurs. So we also have the private sector being part of this. Uh, having said that, I would like to welcome our panelists. If you don't mind, um, in the front. So I will see where everybody is seated so that I introduced. So we will go from closest to me far away. This is uh, David Laborde. He is our senior uh, research fellow here at IFPRI. Then we have Martin um, Van Newkoop. He is the global director of agriculture of, uh, and food global practice at the World Bank Group. Um, Joe Swinen that we already uh, introduced. And then we have uh, Marcus um, Real. He is the Minister Counselor for Food and Agriculture at the Embassy of the Federal Republic of Germany, based here in uh, Washington, D.C. So the way we will run this is this event is as a round table. So we, I will be asking or directing questions to um, each of the four uh, panelists. They will have some time to answer each specific question, and then we will open the uh, floor for uh, the Q&A. So we'd like to start with the uh, first question, which is uh, given the declaration, as uh, Mr. Vacker already uh, um, talked about it a little bit, uh, when he gave his remarks, has a very detailed assessment of the rule of trade in contributing to food security and sustainable agriculture. So I would like to start asking uh, David, uh, what is the role of trade in the pursuit of global food security and nutrition? But if you can really emphasize what it is for this today, but also tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Valeria, and thank you everyone for, for being with us uh, now. So. Um, my background, also I'm a trade economist, so saying that trade is important is not a big novelty for, for, for me. 
Um, if you listen to trade ministries, they will say the same thing, but I think that what was quite strong in Berlin is that the Ministry of Agriculture recognized the role of trade to achieve global food security, but also local food uh, security. And you ask me about uh, what it means for today and tomorrow, I will say that even for the last 6,000 years, as soon as we have seen the first urbanization, it was a need to move food where it can be produced, so where you have land and water, to where people want to live or have to live in order to achieve economies of scale uh, and develop industry, services, and things like this. So this is something we have seen uh, over time. And today it's going to be even more important because first, to some extent, we have uh, occupied uh, most of the space that we have on the planet, that the population is growing, and that the distribution of natural resources um, so land, water, but also good soil. And the distribution of the population doesn't match, is not going to match, you know, we have different regions. Latin America has basically finished its demographic transition. The population is not going to grow so much. It's still going to grow in Asia, it's still going to, to grow in Africa. And so we need trade to rebalance where the population is distributed and where the natural resources are distributed. And if you don't do it with trade, you do it with basically or major migration or conflict. So really, this is why this link of trade as uh, uh, engine of peace and growth is quite important. But beyond this question about just you know carrying food from one place to another and, and thinking about food availability, trade really is about food affordability because you are buying things when prices are low in order to sell when prices are high. So you help the consumers, you help the producers. So at the same time that, that you help poor people or not so poor people to buy food, you help consumer, uh, sorry, producer to get a better income. That also will be part of their food security strategy. You know, what is important when you are uh, facing food insecurity is what is your real income and trade will contribute to it. The last two aspects that are quite important today, I think, is the diversity. So with trade, you get better nutrition. You are not just doomed to consume what you produce uh, in your specific uh, location. So that's good for consumers, meaning that you can access to olive oil, oil, you can access to quinoa, you can access to all of these good products from a nutrition point of view. You can also do it just to get pleasure from the food. You, know, you may like to have different type of wine. You may like to have different type of coffee. So consumers like it. And it's an opportunity also for producers and for small and medium producers. You know, it will be very difficult for, for some of them to uh, be to make money in the commodity um, markets where they cannot achieve economies of scale. But in niche markets, so in answering the specific need of specific consumer that doesn't need to be in their country, you can achieve this. And last dimension is stability. With trade, you pull risk. You are disconnecting your specific uh, weather shock in your country or your pest and disease from what's happened abroad. Today, of course, people are focusing on another uh, disease happening in China. But in the last few months, we had the uh, African swine flu that has decimated the, the peak population in China. And Chinese people are very happy to have world markets providing meat when they cannot buy it locally. So you can have different types of shock and try to help with this. I will just conclude to say that I have started with this question of population and cities and things like this. Nowadays, we cross borders when we uh, trade. And it's where we need cooperation, coordination. When you trade within your country, you have institutions that will take care of all this problem. When you do cross-border trade, you need to make sure that you have a governance that ta can tackle this. Thank you.
Thank you, David, very much. Um, I'm very thankful that you mentioned the uh, the pool risk and also the distribution of natural resources um, through trade. And I will also add the uh, knowledge as well, so that it, it helps trade rebalancing those things. And we will get back to that with uh, the other questions. Marcus, if you don't mind also commenting on this question. Yeah, thank you, Valeria. And then first of all, I, I'd like to thank you for setting up this meeting with us, uh, all you, especially you, but all of your colleagues as well. Uh, I think that's a great event and a great opportunity. Um, yeah, I, I more or less agree with what David had pointed out. And um, we, we all know this figure of uh, nearly 50, uh, 10, 10 billion people on Earth by uh, 2050. And uh, we all know that uh, Agriculture uh, uh, to, to to feed this increasing world population and, and to uh, reach the objective of uh, Agenda 2030, uh, especially the zero hunger goal. Uh, world agriculture needs to produce an increasing amount of food, and that food must be safe and it must be affordable. That's very important. And one more aspect: it, it must be uh, produced in a sustainable way. And uh, discussions in Berlin showed uh, that that. Uh, all participants broadly agreed that uh, egg trade can, can play a very important role to, to this. Um, as, as David already mentioned, uh, and, and as was pointed out by the ministers uh, in the ministerial conference in Berlin, uh, the, 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 the resources uh, worldwide and uh, the opportunities to produce food are very different around the globe. And still, we have about, I don't know, 40, 50 uh, countries uh, that uh, just do not have enough uh, fertile arable land to, to produce enough food for, for their population. So to, to, supply, perm to, to permanently supply these uh, countries and communities with food, uh, there was broad agreement, trade is just indispensable. It's a prerequisite to reach that. Um, another aspect uh, that was discussed was the, the, the contribution of, of trade to, uh, to mitigate or reduce uh, volatility in prices, which is also an important, uh, an important aspect for, for food security because it, it usually uh, uh, has the most adverse impacts on low-income households and <coughs> vulnerable uh, communities. So, uh, and, and, and more general, David also mentioned trade, not only act trade, but also act trade uh, can, can uh, have, a, have a major contribution to, to the development of prosperity, to the reduction of, of, of poverty. Um, there are many studies that show that, that uh, regions or, or countries uh, that are engaged in extensive trade have uh, higher growth rates, more opportunities, more more. Uh, jobs and, and, a, and a wider range of products that they offer can uh, and, uh, to, to, to affordable prices and, and higher competitive, uh, competitiveness. So uh, to, to wrap up the discussion in Berlin, and I'm happy to have two guys here. They, they were in Berlin. I only have second-hand information. They had first-hand insight. Uh, was that there was really broad agreement that trade uh, today and even more tomorrow, facing the challenges of climate change, uh, is, is uh, indispensable for, for global food security. Thank you, Marcus, and thank you very much for bringing the, um, the idea of the role of trade and growth in, in the countries that, that's connected to accessibility and affordability, of course. And now I would like to move to a second question that also based in the communique that we already talked a little bit about, um, communicate really calls for action to, to address 
making food value chains more inclusive, sustainable, and safe as well. So commenting on that, uh, I would like to see if, uh, Yo, maybe you can take this question, which could be, how can regional and global value chains be made more inclusive and sustainable? Thank you. Good afternoon again. Uh, thank you for this question. Um, I have spent much of the last 15 years actually thinking about value chains. And so I'm, I'm very happy to get uh, this question. The, well, the first thing, if you want to make them sustainable and inclusive, they first need to exist. Okay? And so in many cases, global value chains don't exist. And so if you, for example, look in, and of course we're mostly interested, I think, in, in developing countries here, then you see, if you look at developing countries, see where the value chains, and particularly global value chains, exist, it's in high-value products. Okay? They're highly concentrated in that particular part of the agri-food sector. And why is that? Well, the reason is that these global value chains typically imply high demands in terms of food safety requirements, food qualities, uh, on-time deliveries, uh, technology that needs to be used and is specific, etc. And that's costly, okay? And most poor farmers don't have that. So that means that these technology, these value chains are at the same time when they're sourcing product from developing countries, they're actually bringing in technology, know-how, management advice, etc. right? Now that involves cost, and because it's costly, also the local certification, that means where, I mean, where do they evolve? That's where there's money, and where is their money? It's in the high value chains, okay? And that's why in low value chains, it's much harder to get these things going. For example, uh, IFPRI has done a study a couple of years ago um, in Ethiopia, was led by Bart Minton and his team on basically why there was so little take-up of uh, uh, voluntary sustainability standards in the coffee sector in Ethiopia, which is a really big sector for them, very big export sector. And the reason is big because basically to the farmers, the costs were almost higher than the benefits. So the premium they got were not enough to cover or hardly enough to cover their costs. So they didn't bother to do it. Um, another factor is, of course, and this is more from a public good uh, perspective, public investment, is the need for certain infrastructures that's needed, certain institutions that are needed to be in place in order to make these things happening. And I think this comes back, if we're going to talk about the policy implications, etc., we, we need to come back to that. Um, what we see is that the standards and the quality requirements have really exploded in the last 15 to 20 years, okay? essentially since 2000. And that means it's much more costly, much more difficult for uh, poor countries to address these things in global trade. But what you see, again, in these high-value chains, that high-value exports have actually grown tremendously, something like times five over the past 15 years. So it is possible, and if you can address them, it's really profitable. And typically studies show that the trends, um, that the impact effects are actually quite strong. Did I use up my time, or have not 30 seconds? Okay, last point then. The question is, okay, we have values, but where does the value go? Where does the profits go? Okay, and typically if you look at the trade patterns from Africa, for example, you see that Africa is essentially mostly exporting raw material still today. And so there, and if you look at their import structure, it's mostly processed products. There's an interesting, uh, we did an interesting study on the, the cacao chocolate chain, okay? And there you see that cacao, which is still mostly produced in uh, West Africa, there you see that, so essentially four levels. You have the production, which is done by millions of very small farmers. Then you have the first stage, the grinding and the export. That's done by a couple of big companies. 
and the second stage manufacturers also very concentrated. And we see that even the first stage processing, which really basic things you can do grinding, is still mostly done in Africa, sorry, in Europe and North America. And so gradually we see an increase of the share of first stage processing taking place in Africa. And so that's the thing that definitely, and that of course, that's there's more money, more value created in these pro the further you go up the chain compared to just the production of raw materials. Thank you, Joe. <coughs> Martin, if you want to. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Valerie, for the invitation to be here. Uh, it was also my first time at the Global Forum for Food and Agriculture. I want to congratulate again the German government for organizing a highly successful event. And it's good to see Friedrich uh, on the screen. Uh, re related to the question, I want to put forward uh, four ideas. I mean, first building on what uh, Joe was saying, you know, how do you actually build uh, value chains? Uh, the bank has some experience uh, with it. I mean, we have over the last uh, 20 years or so invested about a billion dollars in about 21 projects in Latin America, building productive alliances, bringing farmers and agribusiness together in offtake agreements. Is this working? Yeah. Okay. In offtake agreements uh, that actually ensure that farmers have access to uh, technology, they have access to the information that they need to produce quality products and uh, they have access to the markets to this offtake agreement and the offtake agreement in itself i mean can be a, a collateral for access to finances so you actually resolving multiple co uh, constraints in simultaneous fashion and it is very important for smallholders because very often they face multiple constraints so that's the first uh, thought i mean the second is uh, incentives uh, we know that uh, Worldwide, uh, public support agriculture represents about $700 billion, um, while the hidden cost of the um, global food systems is $12 trillion. Um, so clearly, this, um, those incentives, um, are not, uh, the public support is not very effective. Um, it uh, generates negative environmental externality. So the question is, you know, how can we use this public support program and repurpose them for better, sustainable, environmental-friendly outcomes and provide those incentives to farmers to invest in those technologies? Uh, the third, um, the third um, consideration or proposal or idea would be the uh, universal applications of the principles for responsible agricultural investments. Uh, those were launched uh, about 12 years ago after the food price crisis, when private sector investments generated concerns about land grabbing. Uh, so those principles are in place. I mean, the World Bank has working with UNCTAD in also preparing a lot of knowledge notes uh, how to apply those principles, and they cover community engagements, empowering women, even uh, how to promote to private in uh, investment, food security and nutrition. So application of those principles will also help to make value chains more inclusive and sustainable. And the last um, um, thought would be to kind of unlock the uh, potential of um, information technologies. Uh, when it comes to inclusiveness, I mean, information technologies can contribute through better transparency for farmers uh, in price discovery, thereby empowering them in price negotiations. Uh, they, reduct, uh, they reduce market transaction costs, uh, so through e-marketing platforms, for instance, and that will enable uh, smallholder farmers to better access markets. And of course, I mean, technology transfer to e-extension. And when it comes to sustainability, uh, digital technologies can play a role uh, in improving traceability, I mean, so that, that, that consumers know production and production standards uh, through the value chains and actually farmers can maybe get a premium uh, for that. So those would be four 
uh, elements or for um, uh, pathways, I mean, to make global value chains more inclusive and sustainable. Thank you very much. So I think that um, both answers complemented very well each other. Um, Joe mentioning really that we need to have the right environment in order to be able to really uh, develop these value chains and then they give the right incentives to um, farmers and the whole, all, all the actors that are involved into the value chains to be able to really make it more um, sustainable but as well as uh, inclusive and, and safe. Uh, with this, I would like to move to the uh, third question. Uh, which the question of what are the regional public goods and institutions that governments and donors need to invest in to ensure that trade contributes to food security objectives. Um, I would also like to add a little bit saying while promoting innovations that will help reduce the environmental footprint. Um, having listened to uh, Mr. Vacker's uh, intervention, I think that we can also add that little one there in the question. And if you don't mind, uh, Martin, if you would like to start answering this one. Thank okay. So the regional public goods and institutions. Um, so, I mean, I want to put forward two um, uh, considerations here. I mean, one is, I mean, clear, I mean, by 2050, I mean, the global food system, you know, needs to provide food to 9.8 billion people. I mean, 2 billion more mouths to feed um, by 2050. Um, so um, the, the, the point is that most counties are underinvesting in agriculture innovation. I mean, we actually came forward with a, a, the bank came forward with a report on harvesting prosperity recently that actually lays out, I mean, the case for that. So there's a uh, need to step up innovation, agriculture innovation, resource and extension uh, efforts uh, to increase productivity, but at the same time also given that the uh, food system is very available to climate change, to build resilience and also to reduce the uh, carbon uh, footprint. Now, our investments in, in, in agricultural research and extension have learned, I mean, that there's a lot of um, economies of scale and network effects to be gained if this is done in a kind of a regional fashion. Um, so, so that would be um, um, a regional institution or regional public good that could be supported by by the, by the by the public sector, and when you do it in a regional fashion, then the benefits of this research and uh, of the research and extension will also be more easily shared. Because what you need also is a harmonisation of the regulations to rele release new seed varieties, registration of fertilisers, and plant protection um, um, materials. Um, so that actually then this could then support trade actually to. To, to make sure that farmers can adopt those technologies beyond the borders, thereby increasing productivity and thereby improving the availability of food, which is one dimension of food security. Um, the second is um, well-functioning food uh, safety systems, um, very important uh, for achieving food and nutritional uh, security. Uh, and of course, they also constitute uh, major non-tariff barriers to trade. I mean, uh, so, um, our estimate is that uh, uh, global foodborne diseases, uh, the incidence is about 600 million illnesses per year, and uh, those, data, those data is a little bit outdated, and 420,000 uh, premature deaths per year. So this is a major issue, uh, so also kind of um, shown by what's happening now in the world when it comes to African swine fever and coronavirus, as already mentioned. So upgrading and investing in food safety systems to improve uh, food and nutrition security, but also bringing down the non-tariff barriers to trade. So that would be a second uh, regional public good to be considered. Thank you. Joe, do you mind um, 
also commenting on this one. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, so I had a couple of things which overlapped with Martin, so I'm, I'm not going to repeat uh, some of these. Uh, first of all, of course, it depends what region we're talking about, okay? Because the, the, the requirements for um, for investments and for public policy is going to be very different when you think about Asia or Africa or uh, Europe or so. So let me focus again uh, a bit on, on uh, developing countries in Africa. The uh, what's interesting, if you look at, and this is based on, on the work that has been done here at IFPRI and the Africa Agricultural Trade Monitor, which I all recommend you to read. It's really a fantastic um, uh, uh, reports with a lot of um, very good documentation in there, very good data. So there you see that actually intra-African trade has increased quite significantly over the past 15 years. And so the growth average um, trade growth, annual trade growth is roughly 10%. It depends a bit on what specific reason. But that's a lot, okay? But still, if you look at uh, intra-African trade uh, compared to intra-Asian trade or intra-American trade, it's still much, much lower, okay? So there's lots of room for improvement. It's only estimates put it around 20%, although uh, th this, this uncertainty how accurate actually these numbers are because one thinks that a lot of the intra-African trade is actually unrecorded. But still, if you then look at who is what is constraining that, then it seems to be that it's not really the tariffs which are constraining that. So it's much more basically the cost of trading. And so part of it is, again, certification, basically controls at the border, uh, our and non-tariff measures, okay, which is a bit of everything, and very deficient trade infrastructure. So again, there was data, and then you see that tariffs actually make up something like somewhere between 30 and 3% of actually the trade cost. So that means there's lots of uh, opportunities there for investments, both again in hard infrastructure, roads, whatever control system, and of course also in soft infrastructure to basically uh, measure these things and to help certificate these institutions, etc. On the issue of the uh, non-tariff barriers, there I think we could certainly uh, put in much more basic technical assistance to uh, developing countries and helping them deal with trade negotiations in this uh, in this new world where, where standards and, and the tr uh, quality safety standards are much more important. We did a study for the European Parliament last year uh, to measure the impact, the, the, the role of non-tariff barriers as a new form of, of protectionism. And so there are, at the WTO, there you have the, the a committee where you can launch a complaint if you think that another country is using basically SPS measures as a form of protectionism, okay? So what you see, uh, what's very interesting is the top two countries of the ones who are launching complaints and the ones who are receiving complaints are the same. It's the EU and the US, okay? <laughs> and in the top, uh, so roughly 20% of the complaints in both measures go to the EU and, and to the uh, USA, okay? And there's hardly any developing country outside China in uh, this, the other list, okay? So, and essentially what happens is that developing countries just don't get there, okay, because they're not ready for, for making the arguments, for bringing the things to the table and for defending themselves. So that's clearly an important factor. My last point is on the sustainability issues. Again, work which is done uh, both at OECD but also here at IFPRI on the interaction between trade policies 
and the environmental effects of trade policy. So initially, most of these indicators were there to measure, okay, what's the impact on trade, the market distortions, et cetera. And now they are using the big models to basically also measure what the impact on climate change, et cetera. And so what's interesting is that the effects are quite complex, okay? And so um, I see David looking at me because he did all that work, so. <laughs> what am I gonna say? But in any case, I'm, some of the results seem also to suggest that, de for example, decoupling uh, subsidy systems is good both for, mar for reducing market distortions and for the environment. But in other cases, it's more complex. But I'm gonna let David uh, explain the details of the, of the models. Yeah. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I'm very glad that um, you really uh, um, mentioned the fact that all regions are different, and, uh, but something that it is in common is the need to harmonize. And what I mean harmonize is um, everything that relates no, between safety issues and, 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 and all the other aspects that you just mentioned. Uh, and the technical cooperation, how important it is to be there for developing countries in helping them um, overcome all the uh, all these issues about it uh, and last our last question for the panelists i would like to talk a little bit about the world trade organization and the ministerial conference that is coming up this uh, june so i think that in the declaration it was very clear the importance of uh, dealing with the Agenda 2030, uh, also the Paris Agreement with, with climate change, but also they mentioned many, many times the WTO. Um, so my question is, um, moving towards the, the next ministerial, what are the important topics that will contribute to a sustainable global food system? Um, with this, I would like to uh, ask Marcus first if he can comment on this one. Thank you. Very important question, and uh, actually it's one with a kind of, kind of a personal touch for me because uh, when I started working for the Ministry of Food and Agriculture in 1994, a long time ago, the first task I had was the, the implementation of the results of the Uruguay Round into our common market organizations. And uh, these days we had quite a few of them, so basically one for uh, every, each and every major product or groups of product. Uh, and I can tell you they were all different. They all provided for different instruments and mechanisms for uh, on, on the import side, on the side of the domestic support, and albeit a bit less also on the export side. And uh, for, for ex-students, it was a nightmare to learn all that stuff. Uh, all the more exciting it was to, to, to see that transformed into a rule-based and, and clearly structured and widely harmonized system and to be part of this process. So right from the beginning, I'm, I'm one of the greatest fans of WTO and the multilateral approach and always thought that is an excellent basis for, for future work and progress. And uh, I think for, for, for quite a while that turned out, uh, work, worked out quite well. We saw a considerable or significant, uh, significant decrease of uh, trade distorting domestic support measures. We saw export refunds and export credits uh, basically disappear. And, and we also uh, see that, that many uh, WTO members actually uh, apply lower tariff rates than, than those bound in the WTO. And, and all that created a quite uh, trade-friendly environment and helped to promote egg trade and, and uh, uh, also egg production and thereby in, uh, contributed to support uh, uh, food security. And uh, we're all aware that since a couple of years, uh, this global system is under some, got into some, some enormous pressure. We see a comeback of uh, uh, trade-distorting subsidies in, in some countries. 
uh, we had to realize that within the WTO process, uh, the progress made during the last couple of years was quite limited. And uh, then, of course, we have the trade conflicts uh, during the last two, two or two and a half years, and, and all that created a lot of uh, uncertainty, and uh, that is not good for trade, and that's not good for agriculture. So, um, against this background, uh, uh, the ministers in, in Berlin made a very strong statement, and you find that in the, in the communique, which is available on the, on the website of DFFA, uh, and uh, a strong commitment to, to uh, multilateral uh, and open and trans transparent and non-discriminatory trade system. And uh, at the same time, they uh, uh, reinforced also the commitment to, to uh, special and uh, different uh, treatment for, for developing countries. But they also uh, highlighted uh, the need for an update of, uh, of uh, global trade rules to, to uh, adopt them to new uh, to, to, to shifts in policy, to shifts in markets and new technologies. So um, uh, I, I think that, that's a big challenge and uh, in, uh, hopefully in, in Kazakhstan and the, all the work around there can be made some, some major progress. Uh, and, and uh, oh, I forgot it, this dispute settlement body, of course, which is blocked now and, and which is pivotal for the whole system. So, so the major topics for, for Kazakhstan would be to address the, yeah, the, 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 the question of uh, trade distorting subsidies in agriculture sector as a dispute settlement body. And uh, yeah, hopefully some, some uh, tangible progress can be made. Uh, trade barriers and trade distortions uh, reduced and thereby uh, uh, promoting egg trade and, and egg production around the world and by that uh, uh, increase uh, or, or improve food security. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, David, do you want to comment on this? Thanks. Of course. Yes, I want. Um, so, yes, I will st start when I have stopped before about this question as, as we as soon as we cross border we need policy coordination and we need border policy coordination so all this standard trade policy about some export subsidies they have been uh, dealt with in Nairobi a few years ago tariffs um, other type of regulation at the border but when you're in the farm sector you have also to deal with all the domestic policy all the domestic support that is given to to farmers um, just a small parenthesis, all countries in the world today are not providing positive support to agriculture. There are still a number of countries, in particular in Africa, that are basically taxing their farmers, so it's still an issue. But with the level of development, what we see is that countries are basically using taxpayer money to support their farmers. Um, and I mean, there is an objective reason to do it. There's a number of market failures affecting the agricultural sector in particular. There's also a political economy around it. Many non, no society really want to pay the true cost of food. Um, and if we have discussed that, yes, the farm sector is generating negative externalities. And when you are a taxpayer, you may want to make sure that your tax money is delivering for what you want. And today is job, economic growth, but also health, environment. Uh, the goal is not to bash the farm sector. We have to acknowledge no farmer, no food, no food, no humans, no human, no GDP. So the gains of the food system is good, it's great, but there are still some costs we want to target because some of these policies are not optimal. And we want also to make sure that with the challenge we are going to face tomorrow with climate change, 
with also some, um, I will say, real-world development and landscaping to avoid over-urbanization, we may have to spend more money in agriculture. So the way we are going to spend more money in agriculture has to be done in a proper way for domestic stakeholders. But we want also to make sure it's not creating negative externalities or basically shifting the problem to the neighboring countries. And this is why we need rules. And WTO has been uh, very good at, at that. He has achieved huge, uh, huge changes. I think the Berlin Declaration is a kind of love letter to what everything that has been achieved because they say, okay, countries have to develop their own system, but respecting international obligation. And all the different parts of the WTO are referred to some extent, SPS, TBT. So all these technical terms mean that, yes, your consumer has a right to be protected, to have rules, to have norms, but they have to be done in a proper way using Codex Elementarius, for instance, so all these international standards. So it should not be kind of hidden protectionism. We want science to be part of that, to get the best policy to uh, make sure we improve the livelihood of everyone. So just my last maybe two points to conclude. What can be achieved during the ministerial conference that will take place in Kazakhstan? We have to be pragmatic and realist, you know. Um, when I started my career, it was the beginning of the Doha round, so people were saying, okay, we are going to have a Doha round. Uh, in my PSD, I was saying, no, it's going to be a failure, so I'm kind of happy about that to some extent. But the fact that we want to have huge success um, with a crazy achievement with 150 countries on so many dimensions has not worked so far. So we want to make sure that at each milestone we achieve something on this road to get a, a rule-based trading system that, that, that is safe. So I think the three things that will be important, dispute settlement, we have discussed it because if, no, if we have no institution to enforce the rules, the rules are useless. Uh, an agreement that has been developed in the recent years is trade facilitation. And we should not underestimate it because a lot of the trade costs in the food system are, can be this hidden uh, trade cost where time matters. When you trade perishable, you want to trade in time. So there is a lot of measure and it can be a win-win part. You know, We want to improve some uh, custom facilities. We want to have transparency that every Economic actors have the same information and can really participate on a fair basis, small like big. So trade facilitation and the follow-up and the implementation by both developed and developing economies is going to be important. But the big, big elephant in the room is how we are going to reshape the discipline on farm support on these subsidies. Because as I've said, we may have to spend more money, but we want to do it in a way that is transparent and that everyone is comfortable. And based on, on the last few years, I will say, let's try to keep it simple and transparent in order to get people notification. Long and complex rule doesn't work. I'm stopping. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I would like just to give you one minute if um, you want to say some final um, ideas or comments. Um, any of you or you're all good? David, all good? Because I've started to say that trade is great, but trade is not the only solution and will not uh, solve any problem. Trade is about maximizing economic outcome. So if you're in a perfect world without externalities, yes, at the same time that you are maximizing economic outcome, you are maximizing welfare. But we have imperfect markets. We do not have carbon markets. We do not have water markets. We have countries where land rights are not respected. So of course, if you have trade in this setting, trade alone will not fix all the problems.
So with that, yes, Marco, please. Perhaps one one additional mark to to quest, uh, remark to question number two. I'm not sure it was mentioned. Uh, one one thing uh, which is uh, very important in terms of sustainability, uh, uh, from our point of view or from my point of view, is. Uh, uh, the, the food waste issue. So, so the, the food waste and food loss all along the, the value chain uh, has a, a huge potential to, to, to improve, and both in terms of sustainability and food security. Uh, so, so, so this is one one thing uh, we should keep in mind in uh, relation to sustainability, trade, trade and sustainability. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for that last comment. Um, but with that, I will uh, open the floor for uh, questions. We will have uh, Mr. Acker, is he? Okay. There we go. Hello again. So if um, he's also available for answering any questions. So before you start, I will give you some time to think about it. And in the meantime, I will ask the first question. And I would uh, like to ask David if uh, he can comment a little bit in the work. Um, you've been doing with some of your colleagues about uh, emissions and, and farm support. Thank you. So, yeah, yes, briefly, it's uh, a thread of work we have started uh, a couple of years ago here, in particular in collaboration with, with the World Bank. Um, and it's directly linked to my last point. You know, we, we like trade, we know that trade is going to maximize things, therefore removing policies that hurt trade is going to be good for economic outcome, but what it means for environmental outcomes. And, and what we see that the complexity of, of farm policies and at least the different instruments that government are using today to support their farmers can have contrasted impact uh, on environmental outcome. And just to take there is a most simple example, if you have a tariff, you are taxing basically uh, food imports, so your domestic price is high, so of course, your domestic producer will produce more, but overall, consumption is limited. And the best way to limit emissions is to limit consumption on the short time, I will say. Now, when you so removing tariffs overall in the current technology is going to improve emissions. At the opposite, subsidies are increasing production, are basically also decreasing uh, market price, and are supporting indirectly consumption. So removing the couple farm subsidies we have today will reduce emissions. Of course, depending on which sector you are, which country you are, we have to be much more careful. But globally, this is the type of message we have. So just saying, okay, let's remove all the policies. It's not going to have the effect we may think about solving the problems of environmental externalities. So the question about how we can repurpose this money and what type of good policies versus bad policies within the box of farm policies, that's the, f the future both for policymaker research and at the end also defining what the society wants the food system to deliver actually. Thank you, David. I'm sorry that I put you on this spot, but uh, I thought it was an interesting one. Um, does anybody have any questions in the room? Rob, please. Um, no, thank you. Interesting discussion, familiar ter territory. Um, just had a question to Yo. what you said about food standards and um, uh, assisting African countries to negotiate um, in trade negotiations. So my question is, what, what would you help them negotiate? That's, I hope, uh, I assume it's not to complain better because they seem to not to be complaining enough. Um, but 
what would you negotiate in terms of uh, when it comes to non-tariff barriers, particularly food standards uh, in, in trade, which is an obstacle to, to many developing countries? So I guess you would not try and help, help them negotiate to lower the standards, right, so to, for that could affect safety. So what would be the negotiating in the trade arena, or should we not, not just do much more in the area of improving the value chains such they, that they can comply with, with the, uh, the food standards uh, at affordable cost? Um, do we have any more questions? If you don't mind introducing yourself, please. I'm Thank Jay you. I'm Jay Brannigan. I'm from the Luger Center. I'm just curious. I'm not sure who's to answer this. That how much uh, is it a problem for trade, the restrictions on GMO crops and now on CRISPR crops um, and CRISPR animals uh, and GMO animals? And is this problem going to get better or worse in the coming years? We have one more there, Corinne. Thank you. Jeanette Trammell from the OAS. I'm wondering if about the uh, trend we see now in terms of the, uh, among consumers to, to shop local, eat local, and, and um, to try to support local economies, and that in terms of just juxtaposition to the, the, uh, the whole trade issue and a uh, number of these things, if there's any kind of a, if you'd like to just comment on those uh, two uh, different areas. Thank you. Joe, do you mind then starting right now? Thank you. Okay. Let me start with Rob's question. I can say something about the other two questions as well. Uh, Rob, the, uh, the no, my point is that, well, you know, if you look at the literature on uh, the impact of, of standards, okay, safety standards and, and, and quality standards, et cetera, on trade, on trade, right, on trade distortion, I mean, the, there the literature shows very mixed effects. Okay, it's almost case by case specific, and so the the John Beggin, for example, from uh, uh, well, he changed universities a couple of times now. <laughs> but I mean, he's done a lot of work on that together with students. Frank van Tongeren from OECD has done a lot of work on that. We have done work on that, and essentially, what you find, okay, is that some of these standards do um, hamper trade. Uh, many of the standards enhance trade, so they are a catalyst to trade, so reduce transaction costs. Uh, they also reduce uh, consumer uh, asymmetric information, therefore stimulate consumption. And, stimulate. and so the net effect is often commodity-specific, case-specific, etc. Okay, which makes, if you submit a claim, uh, a com I mean, it's countries always complain, right? But that's not the point. The point is when is the complaint justified? When, it when is it really an, a non-tariff barrier and when is it not? So to make that distinction, you need a lot of analytical capacity, okay? If we could do some of this analytical work, but then you still need to have the lawyers and the legal systems and the people making the case in the, in the trade negotiations. And I think that's where uh, technical assistance can certainly play a role. Uh, the question on GMO and CRISPR, it's, it's a very good, it's a very important question, I think, okay? Or an issue, I'm, uh, I'm from Europe, so I've done, I've been, uh, you know, every time in Europe when I participate in a panel, I said, I'm never going to participate in a GMO panel again. <laughs> but then, you know, when you have a painful event after some time, you think it's not too bad, it's not too bad. So you participate again. Ah, oh, this is terrible. I never do it again. So the public opinion in Europe is so polarized, okay, on it that it's basically any argument has no impact. 
because either you're in favor or you're against, and that's it. At the political level, it means that right now the votes in the European uh, system, in the European Parliament, in the committees, is 50-50 roughly. Okay. Now, the problem is that in order to have uh, an approval of GMO, you need a qualified majority. Okay. In order, that means you need more than, you need something like 63% of the votes or something. In order to remove this, uh, I mean, go back towards introducing more regulations, you also need a qualified majority. So it's a total stalemate. It's been that for 10 years, and I don't see anything changing in the, in the short run. So that's on the GMO thing. On the CRISPR thing, I think there the problem is even more, pro I mean, there I'm, so I think there's no going to be not any change on the GMO regulation in Europe for the foreseeable future. CRISPR, I think everybody in Europe was surprised how the decision was made by, the, it was made by the, the Court of Auditors in Luxembourg, uh, Court of Justice, yes, to basically um, rank CRISPR methodology within the GMO regulation, okay? And I think it took a lot of people by surprise who thought it would have to go through some kind of a policy decision-making procedure where uh, scientists could weigh in, etc. I think people were so upset about the regulations, well, particularly because done by a court, that now there's a counter-movement and organization. Whether it's going to be successful, I don't know, because also the people who like to have this classificate are also organizing themselves. I think on trade, you know, the it's actually mixed because Europe imports quite a bit of animal feed, okay, where it really matters, and they are actually, the farm unions have weighed in and say like, okay, it's fine, <laughs> we don't have food, GM food, okay, but we import so much uh, animal feed from Latin America or, or the US, we have to have that. I think the big impact, okay, is actually, and that's what I'm most worried about, is the regulatory impact on countries like Africa, okay? Because there, if, and there's, there's both a political uh, impact and there's also trade impact that countries are afraid to introduce it because they can no longer export to Europe. But there's also kind of, an, a, let's say, a global political influence playing there. And I think from a development perspective, I think that's much more important. Our last part on consumption from local. You know, I think if you look at the data, okay, on that, I'm, uh, <laughs> I've looked at a couple of sectors. These two things seem to go together, localization and globalization, okay? That consumers do like more to eat local food and local products, but at the same time, there's more trade as well. And so what seems to be a contradiction, in practice doesn't seem to be a contradiction. These things seem, these processes seem to be going hand in hand. Just one reflection on the shop local, eat local, and you know, this is part of a kind of a larger kind of movement. It goes together, as, as Joe was saying. Um, and I think you know it reflects. I mean, if you talk to agribusiness, I mean, you know, what is the future? What they're looking at when it comes to the marketing of of of, of uh, food products? I mean, there's a trend towards connecting the consumers with the producers. Uh, so, shop local, eat local is one manifestation of it. The other is, of course, uh, the, the the prospect that digital actually provides. I mean, to link consumers with producers across, I mean, uh, geographical distances. Uh, and that's, of course, also also happening with all the e-marketing, et cetera. So it's part of a larger trend connecting consumers with the people who produce the food that they eat. Yeah, and the traceability, no? That will apply also with the value chains that we were commenting before. Yes, David? Yes, thank you. Um, I think on this question of technology, and it has been, the political economy has been well explained. Uh, and we, we need just also to be pragmatic in the sense that 
We have a lot of challenges. We need to adapt to new pest and disease, new conditions very fast. So we need to have various technologies. I'm not arguing in any case in for one or the other, but we will need technologies. Uh, and we will need also uh, a regu regulatory environment where people are ready to take risks and invest. And one of the big problems we see uh, today is yes, um, there is people that will not even invest in some commodities or R&D in some commodities because they don't know if at the end they will be able to sell their product. And so that's a major problem to, 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 to be dealt with. In, in terms of um, shop local and things like this, I think consumers should be totally free to, to decide what they want. But what is important, I think they should really know what is behind such uh, behavior. So if I take, once again, the example of, of people saying, oh, I'm not going to have a, a piece of cloth made with BT cotton because it's GM and I'm buying organic cotton, I have to tell them, but the environmental footprint of organic cotton is terrible. So that's an ideology, but based on science, if you think about land use, water use, and other things, um, that's a, a choice. And same thing, if you want to buy your uh, local tomato, but your local tomato is basically um, grown in a greenhouses that take energy from a, a coal plant, uh, an electric plant uh, filled with coals, it's much worse than carrying your tomato over uh, 1,000 kilometers or 2,000 kilometers. So just make sure that people make the right decision, not based on things they believe, but on, on fact and uh, as scientists, it's all a contribution. Yes, I think economists are scientists. Um, my last point will be about this question of trend negotiation. We have to acknowledge that in the past, there was some asymmetry of power in some trend negotiation, both bilateral and multilateral. Uh, it has created um, I mean, lack of trust in the system in some cases, and we are still paying some of the price of decision taking during the round that some developing countries are not fully understand at, at the time. So making sure that we have people on both sides of the table during negotiation that have the same information, the same capacity, is needed to have trust and stability uh, in the system. But I think also, and uh, this time I'm going to steal ID from, from you, uh, in this new agreement, we see, for example, a lot of things about um, geographical labeling, how you define your intellectual property rights. And if you are in Europe, you are very clear that it's important because you are going to create value on that. So how developing countries can also protect their own specific assets, their niche markets, their type of cocoa, in order to build this brand is important. It is where also building their capacity will be great. Thank you, David. So I think that we're going to a um, um, theme in terms of transparency, information, and harmonization are three key components for, for this discussion. I would like to open the, um, to see if someone uh, online has questions. Yes, uh, we have Thank four you. questions. The first one is for Yo, Marcien, and David from Jonathan M. at SIAT, Colombia. What are your top five policy strategies to ensure that the African continental free trade area will be a success? The second one is for Mr. Wacker from El Hinojos at the Catholic University of Duvain, Belgium. Food trade is highly dominated by big players, including countries and agri-food companies. How can we improve trade governance and equity? The third one is for David Laborde from Jonathan M. at Sia Columbia. Countries have different comparative and competitive advantages. 
how do you ensure cooperation and coordination of some country if some countries feel disadvantaged? And the last one is from Susanta Mahapatra, Deputy Director of Agriculture Administration at the Government of West Bengal, India. What steps are being taken by IFPRI to ensure equitable distribution of foods amongst various sections of society, especially those living below poverty line? Thanks. Thank you. Um, any of the panelists would like to start? Mr. Rucker, if at any point you want to say something, please raise your hand or something. We can see you. <laughs> Thank you. Any takers? No, I started writing down my top five, but I only got to two, so maybe another panelist can add another three or so. <laughs> um, so I, I think the question was, I mean, the top five policy to actually make the African Free Trade Agreement work, no? I mean, for uh, smallholder farmers. Um, um, and this, of course, was also discussed at the, uh, at the Global uh, Forum for Food and, Food and Agriculture, and also emphasized, actually, by the African Union uh, Commissioner when she did her, you know, her um, intervention at the, uh, at the forum. Um, I think um, an important thing is to link um, farmers to markets. Uh, important is to better integrate value chains, uh, gi given that, actually, demand for food and the composition of the demand is kind of moving towards high-value agriculture produce. I mean, food and vegetables, um, animal proteins when incomes rise. I mean, those are more perishable. Uh, so investments in agro-logistics um, would be one um, important consideration to kind of unlock the potential of the African um, Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement. Um, right now, there is underinvestments in the um, agro-logistics infrastructure because there's also a perception, I mean, this is a kind of a not really a public good. Um, uh, this would be the private sector doing so, but of course, there are all kind of limitations for the private sector to make those investments uh, because there's also public good dimensions to it. So there's not a lot of experience in public-private partnerships in agriculture. So how, making, how to make public-private partnerships in agriculture work for upgrading agro-logistics in, in Africa, I think that will be pretty much on top of, um, of our list. Um, and the second then, I mean, um, the second uh, uh, priority goes back to what I already said earlier, and that is making sure, I mean, that farmers, you know, what you see is very strong urbanization in, in Africa, so increasingly, you know, consumers buying their food in a rapidly growing urban food market and a geographical distance between consumers and, and producers. Uh, consumers don't know the producers anymore, so they demand safe food. I mean, to what extent can African farmers actually comply with um, the expectations and the demand that consumers have when it comes to food safety standards? So investing in food safety systems, uh, making sure that farmers have the knowledge and the tools to comply with those, I mean, would be another important uh, um, intervention, uh, I think, to make sure that those benefits truly accrue to um, to, to smallholder farmers. So, agro-logistics and food safety, that would be my top two. Thank you. Anyone commenting on the Africa? Yes. Um, and, and actually, it will allow me to answer the, the other question, because I think that the, the Africa continental free trade area is really um, the perfect illustration of what challenges we face. 
And I mean, the first one will, in order to make it a reality, we will need still um, a shift in the mindset of some policymakers. And yes, countries have different comparative advantages. It means that some countries have to be net food importer and others have to be net food exporter. Of course, that can change over time and technology and uh, for different products, so it can be different. But at one point, if you want to increase intra-regional trade, it will mean that some country will have to import more. So if you have some countries that say, our goal is to be self-sufficient and we are going to do the IFCFTA, that's not compatible, okay? You have to accept it. Import is not bad, export is not good. That's part of the trade. And you can do a lot of intra-agricultural trade also. That's what we have seen in Europe. But in some cases, you have to accept to be a net food importer. And this has not been fully internalized, okay? Yes, increasing export, everyone agree. Increasing import, or let the other guy do it. So that means that that is at the core of, of the IFCTA. It behind it also the Malabo Declaration of, of um, the um, increasing um, regional trade and things like this. So, stand of standard mind. After, make sure that policy can be enforced because we have seen many agreements where people are saying, okay, this is what we are going to do. We have a treaty and it's not enforced. So we will need mechanism that will force countries to comply. We will need to make sure that the private sectors can challenge local government, regional government to say, you are violating this agreement. I want to be protected. That's what we have in other regions of the world. We will need this type of body, uh, an operational body in Africa, or people may have to go through Geneva to do it, but that will be key. You know, to make sure that the civil society, the private sectors, make sure that what is signed is implemented. And that also requires so, some uh, things. The third thing is competition law. When we just, and it has been raised in the question, you know, if you have a big market, some big players can control it, and if you have a trade agreement, but you don't have something that can deal with competition law and making sure that there is no uh, abuse of power, that's a problem. If you look at the European Union or at the US, yes, you have an integrated market, you have common rules, people are trading, and you have people taking care of the competition at the same level of scale. So I think in order to make sure that the benefit of the IFCTA go to all producers and go to all consumers, thinking about what is the competition law at the, the Africa level will be important. And then, yes, you will need to spend money in infrastructure and logistics, because otherwise it may uh, stay um, a, a dream. Um, and that's all for me. Can I ask you one more thing, David, related with that? About informal trade in Africa, it seems that it's a, a key, um, key concept um, with that. Thanks. So, yes. Uh, a relatively large share, in particular in, in some part of Africa, of the trade is informal, or at least unrecorded. So here we have to, to be careful that you have some people that have even a VAT numbers and are paying taxes, but they are crossing a border. And in particular, in some part of Africa where there is no more tariffs, there is no more interest for the custom officer to record the transaction. So if I cannot collect money, why I should care? So we, we have some relatively last flow, and IFPRI and uh, many of my colleagues are working with this, with different partners, USAID, uh, IFAD, and so on, to document it, because it's quite important to know how much we trade today if we want to double trade for uh, policymakers. And then, after there is a different barriers we have talked about, you know, uh, administrative red tape, other things that, yes, it's better for some people to not go through the formal sectors, but not going through the formal channel may have health implication, you know? It's quite good to have 
um, SPS measure apply at the border. And just a small parenthesis on this, you know, sometimes people think, oh, we are going to be contaminated if we buy food from afar and things like this. You know, in the US, there is 100 times more cases of food poisoning based on local food than on imported food. Because we apply much stricter uh, standards on what we import because people are controlling. I think we have one question in the back of the room. And we'll have time for one more if we do. And otherwise, so this is it. Thanks. <laughs> uh, Julie Kurtz from IFPRI. Uh, I, I was wondering if you could say something more about the winners and losers in trade. Um, if a country opens up to trade and, and some farmers or producers have comparative advantage and others feel like they get thrown over under the bus because they can't compete. And we know that for a lot of poor producers that sometimes labor mobility is not easy. So I'm wondering how we evaluate. It's one thing for a producer who, who has um, the ability to transfer to different kind of employment, but for those who may be poor and don't have that ability, um, either the mobility, the resources, the education, and then what that does just to the dignity as well as the economic survival of a community. Thank you. Any, anyone? All right, David, you, you are picked. Yes, I bring the code pick of winners and losers. So yes, uh, trade, domestic or international, it is not a rosy story where everyone is going to be happy, win, and things. It's about competition. Competition creates winners and losers. Um, so if you have mobility, you can adjust. You can move from one product to another. You are going to move from one sector to another. And on the long run, everyone will be happy. So that's what economists will say. Now, on the short run, you have adjustment cost. There is economic cost because if you are invested in uh, even a, a new factory to, to, to process the local cocoa, and after opening, you are not competitive, this is a sunk cost. These people are going to lose the money. If uh, you have a piece of land and uh, you can just grow a couple of crops, and now you are going to face global competition, the value of your land is going to, to deplete. That's your main asset. So you can become poor not only in income, but also in wealth. And this is something we see including in developed economies. When farmers take loans to buy a piece of land, and if following a, a trade policy or another policy reform, the price of, of commodities go down, they may not be able to pay back their loan. They are bankrupt. So the answer we have as economists is but you need to have adjustment package. You need to get uh, training because it means that structurally, these people will not be competitive. So on the long run, they will have to phase out. And it's better for their kids to get a good training and not to continue an activity that uh, is not uh, fruitful for them than to stay there at Vitam Eternam, just subsidized by taxpayer money and basically become dependent of what, what uh, people will do. So, uh, yes, I think that it's weird, basically, going to free trade doesn't mean that government have nothing to do. I mean, going to free trade, government have much more things to do and better things to do. And I think the problem we have seen in the last 20, 30 years with the globalization is, basically, government have not done their job to manage it. And it has created a lot of people that have suffered from it and say, okay, so inequality increase, economic growth is on the rise, but I didn't get anything from it. So this system doesn't work for me, so I don't like it. And we have to understand them. But yes, it's more action, not less action. Thank you, David. 
I think that uh, after your comments, uh, Martin and, and Joe has something to say. So. Well, so yeah, I, I think your, your your question actually touches upon Friedrich's last point. Actually, he mentioned that he's having discussion in Germany about farmers' fair share of the price, etc. And uh, I think it's an interesting uh, discussion. It goes. There's a big discussion in Europe about the living income and and living wages. Uh, and, and the thing is, you know, society apparently is demanding more, I mean, than just an agricultural product, but, you know, is willing to pay more for all kind of attributes that that product brings with it. Uh, and I think that's a little bit of context of those discussions on living incomes and, and wages. And, you know, one could imagine, I mean, that uh, that concept might work if you have a compact, you know, a compact between the consumers, um, the private sector, the farmers and the public sectors. Uh, the consumers pay premium uh, to a particular product, and in return, I mean, they are assured, and there is a whole traceability story again there, they are assured that farmers meet certain standards, I mean, that society is concerned about, either either environmental or social. I mean, uh, they take child labor in, in cocoa. Um, the, the public sector part of the compact would be to make sure that farmers have the production efficiency frontier. You don't want to give a premium to farmers who are not efficient. Um, and then the private sector part of the compact would be to uh, provide a transparency that actually the premium that's being paid end up in the hands of the farmers. Uh, so, um, you know, <laughs> would that be, you know, could this be applied in practice? I mean, that's the question out there, but that would be in theory... I mean, the way forward on this thinking on living income and living wages. I, I think it's an interesting question, and um, uh, there's a lot of interest, uh, so I'm sure the last word has not um, been said about it. Thank you. And we're running, we actually ran out of time, so, Yo, if you don't mind saying your final comments and... and, and okay. <coughs> Let me make three quick points. And first, you know, economic development is... Economic restructuring is inherent in economic development, okay? If you look at how the U.S. looks today compared to how it looked 20 years ago, 40 years ago, the structure is very different, right? So this is inherent that change takes place. The point with basically uh, trade liberalization is basically you want to make this not abrupt, but as a transition process that you enhance and basically invest in education, other facilities to allow people to move on to higher uh, wages or higher income, right? Second thing is the WTO says nothing about that you cannot support your farmers. The WTO says, or the whole trade uh, discussion, liberalization, is about the way you support your farmers. So if you think you want to support farmers because their income is so low for whatever reasons, you can do that. So you just to do it in a <laughs> sorry, you should just just do it in a way that does not hurt farmers in other countries. Okay, that's what trade reforms are all about. And so the best example, I think, is the common agriculture policy in Europe. I mean, they still spend 50 billion euros a year on, su on subsidizing farmers, but in a way which is much less distortive than they used to do it 30 years ago. And it's not hurting African farmers as much as they do today. And then the third thing, what we should not forget, is what David also said. In many developing countries, farmers are taxed. So trade liberalization is going to benefit them. It's not going to hurt them. Thank you very much. I would just like to thank uh, all the panelists. I think that we had a very uh, nice and fruitful discussion. And I would also like to thank one more time uh, Marcus and the uh, German Embassy based here in D.C. and the um, um, Ministry of Agriculture uh, in Berlin. And thank you all for, for your time. Thank you.